Scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, this past week marked the 81st anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attacks. The U.S. fleet lost 2,400 lives. 21 ships, including almost every battleship, 188 aircraft, plus another 150 that were damaged. As President Roosevelt called it famously at the time, it was a day that will live in infamy. The man who led the Japanese attack was named Mitsuo Fuchida. He gave the famous order, Tora, 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 meaning that the Japanese had achieved complete surprise on the U.S. base. Fuchida was not a religious man, but as the war went on, he constantly escaped death. He was ordered out of Guam two weeks prior to the Allied invasion in which every Japanese soldier on the island lost their lives. He left Hiroshima one day prior to the nuclear bomb being dropped on the city. After the bombing, he was ordered with a team uh, of fellow Japanese soldiers to investigate the damage. Over the ensuing weeks and months, He was the only one on his team that did not have radiation poisoning as a result of investigating the rubble. In the aftermath of the war, the U.S. military held trials for war crimes, and Fuchida uh, decided to interview Japanese POWs. His goal was to talk to the prisoners of war and establish that the Americans had treated the Japanese as poorly as the Japanese had treated the Allies. But in those conversations, Fuchida heard two stories that would change his life. The first was of a Japanese uh, prisoner of war, an old buddy of his that he had assumed was dead. And as Fuchida talked to him, he learned that his buddy had actually been treated well in an American camp when he was a prisoner of war of the Americans, especially by American missionaries. Uh, many of whom had parents who had been killed by Japanese soldiers, who had been martyred by Japanese soldiers. And Fuchida could not understand why people who had uh, lost loved ones, had been treated badly, would treat the enemy well. Second, he received a book written by an American who was a prisoner of war held by the Japanese. Uh, The American had, like Fuchida, come close to death many times and uh, was searching for meaning. Uh, And in the prison camp, he had received a Bible, and he read the Bible, and through uh, the reading of God's word, the Lord opened his eyes, and he became a believer. And through those testimonies, uh, the Lord was gracious to Fuchida, and uh, he became a follower of Jesus. He actually became an evangelist, 
and the Lord used his ministry to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And 81 years later, it might be easy for us to miss how difficult that may have been for American Christians. But imagine for a second if your family member had been among those 2,400 killed at Pearl Harbor, and this was the man who led the attack. If it was your parent, your spouse, your sibling, your friend, your child who had been killed. Would it be difficult at all to react to Fuchida's story with joy if you were dealing with that pain? Would there be any part of you that would be angry? Today, we're going to continue through the book of Jonah, and we're going to see that Jonah did have an angry reaction to the salvation of the Ninevites, who had been so abusive to the Israelite people. And we're going to see that Jonah's anger was not righteous anger, but sinful anger. So in doing so, we're going to ask the same questions as if Jonah was coming to us at Redemption Hill for biblical counseling. We're going to ask those same questions. We're going to look, we've got a little outline up here. We're going to look at Jonah's circumstances, what we call uh, the heat. We're going to look at Jonah's sinful response. We're going to look at Jonah's idolatrous desires and false beliefs. We're going to see what the gospel, what the Bible has to say about those actions and those false desires and beliefs. And then we want to see the righteous desires, beliefs, and choices that result from the word of the Lord. So let's bow our heads and pray, and then we'll hop into God's word together. Lord, we need you today. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. May I speak truly, wisely, and clearly for your name's sake. Amen. I'm going to go back one verse. I'm actually going to start in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, which is the last verse Josh left off on last week. So beginning in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is God's word. We're going to first look at Jonah's circumstances. Now, our circumstances never cause our sin, but it's helpful to look at our circumstances in order to understand our responses. And these are strange circumstances for, to lead to a prophet's sin. His circumstances are God being gracious to Nineveh, God forgiving Nineveh. He quotes the, the, he's not just pulling that language about being gracious and merciful and slow to anger. He's not just pulling that out of the air. He's quoting Exodus 34. It's a famous passage. It's quoted all over the Old Testament. Uh, in the context, in the book of Exodus, Moses, who God used to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses is talking to God, and Moses is asking God to show him uh, his glory. And God's like, you don't want that. I, it would wipe you out. That would not be good. But here's what I'll do, Moses. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, 
and I'll cover you with my hand and my glory and goodness will pass before you. And you'll see the tail end of my glory, but you won't see my face. And it says the Lord, the Lord declares his name to Moses. So listen to what the Lord says is his name, his most central characteristic. The Lord descended in the cloud, and this is from Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, while the rest of the Old Testament quotes this in a way that praises and glorifies God, Jonah finds in this cause for anger, And what makes this more confusing is that if you just measure in terms of response to the sermon, this might be the most successful prophet ever. (laughs) Take for for instance Isaiah. So this is Isaiah's commission. It's one of the famous passages from all the prophetic books, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God. And it's incredible. There are seraphim, six-winged beings crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there you have Isaiah falling on his face before the glory of God and saying, I am a sinful man, a man of sinful lips. And an angel takes a a burning coal and puts it on his tongue to show uh, God's sanctification and salvation of his people. And God says, "Who, who will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go, I'll go. Here I am, send me. And that's usually where the sermon stops, the mission sermon that quotes that. And because next God says, okay, Isaiah, here's your assignment. You're going to preach to a people who will hear, but they won't understand. They're going to see, but they're not going to get it. And you're actually, your preaching is going to serve to harden their hearts. And Isaiah says, how long, Lord? God says, until their cities are in rubble and uninhabited, and only a remnant of a remnant remains. That was Isaiah's job. That was going to be the result of Isaiah's preaching. And to be clear, success in the Christian life is based on faithfulness, not numerical results. But Jonah went to not the people of Israel like Isaiah did, who you'd think would be the most likely to respond. He went to maybe Israel's greatest enemies, their capital city. And he preached destruction. And the whole city repented. The king repented. Let me tell you, as a preacher— If you preach and the whole city repents, that's a good day. (laughs) And Jonah's angry. It makes no sense. And we look at that anger. We look at the thorns that come up from the ground, the, the visible 
response to that heat, the visible response to his circumstances. It's anger that puts Jonah in the judgment seat. One of the commentators on this passage said that the ultimate sign of depravity is the creature putting the creator on trial. That's exactly what Jonah's doing. Jonah is looking at the character of God and saying, God, based on your character, you are being unjust. And it's more than just this incident of anger. In verse 2 of chapter 4, Jonah says, this is why I ran from, with haste from Tarshish. When I was a kid growing up, I had always assumed when I heard the story that Jonah ran because he was scared. I think I, that's how I understood it. But that's not what happened. Jonah wasn't running because of fear. Jonah was running because of hatred. Jonah hated the Ninevites so much that he was scared that because of God's character, he was afraid that God would forgive them and relent of the disaster that he felt they deserved. And I wonder if you and I are more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. Maybe we, are, we relate to that Pearl Harbor example where a foreign nation, a foreign power threatens those we love or something we hold dear and it makes us afraid and angry and breeds hatred. Or a political leader or party who threatens something you love, something on the throne of your heart, or threatens something that you value as good and right. Maybe it's someone who personally uh, picked on you, or maybe even something that causes more anger in us, picked on our spouse or our kids, someone we care about. Or maybe it's a family member, someone who was close to us, who leveraged that relationship to hurt us or our loved ones deeply. It leads to a hate, which is clearly outside of what is called for by God's people. So where, what are the deeper roots of that hatred? What are the evil passions and false beliefs in Jonah's hearts? What we call the roots. What are the roots of that sin? We're going to see that Jonah had an evil passion and false beliefs. Jonah's evil passion was when, in verse 1, he said, when God is merciful to Nineveh, Jonah is greatly pleased. I believe the text says exceedingly displeased. Displeased Jonah exceedingly. But in the text we're going to look at next week, we're going to see in verse 6 that God raises up a plant to give Jonah shade. He says he's exceedingly glad about the plant. What pleases Jonah is his own comfort. Remember, Jonah wasn't complaining when God saved him from the storm and when God saved him from the fish. That was fine. God was free to be merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to Jonah. 
Oh, but when God acts the same way to Jonah's enemies, now Jonah is putting God on trial. God's grace is great and okay until it violates what we want. See, you and I have our own little kingdoms, our own, little, our own desires, our own passions for our own glory and our own comfort. But God is God. He is good and he is sovereign. And his kingdom is going to, at times, conflict with our kingdom. And the question is, what is on the throne of your heart? Whose agenda is going to rule your heart? As one of my former pastors said, we can choose to be kings and queens of our own unconsequential tiny kingdoms. Or we can choose to be a child in the kingdom of God. false passion for our own comforts and our own glory. That couples with a false belief. Jonah believes that God is weak on sin. Jonah is looking at the the sin of the Ninevites, and he's thinking, man, they deserve Sodom and Gomorrah. Sulfur, fire raining down from the sky. And he said, where's the sulfur and fire? Where's the justice? You know what they've done to your people? You promised to love and care for your people. Where are you now? And in our world, we see over and over injustice on TV, on the internet, locally and globally. It seems like people are getting away with it. It seems, it can feel like God doesn't care. And if we're not careful, that can corrupt our heart and we can, like Jonah, put God on trial and accuse him of injustice, of being soft on sin. And that can interlock with that hatred to say, I hear you talking about Lottie Moon. I hear you talking about missions. But you know what? Those people, I don't even want them to hear about Jesus. They deserve what they're going to get. So what does the Bible say in response? Well, the Bible makes clear. The Bible makes clear that God delights in being merciful at his very deepest level. In the past, some of you may have wondered, what was God doing before he created? Some of you have had that thought, and others of you are like, Jimmy, that's a really weird thing to ask. I've never wondered that. But it's really important to understand where God is coming from in saying that his name, the thing that identifies him most, is being slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Jesus tells us what God was doing before he created in John chapter 17, verse 24. 
John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, that's believers in Jesus' time and who would follow, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Here's the key. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before creation? Our God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. From eternity past, the Father has loved the Son. The Son has loved the Father. And the Spirit has been the bond of that love. You may have heard the famous verse from 1 John that God is love. This is why John could say that. Because before anything else existed, before any, anything in the universe, people, earth, nebula, anything, God loved within himself. And God created out of an overflow of that love. He did not create man and woman as slave labor. He created us to bring his creation into the love that he has had from eternity past. And yet, you and I turn our love away from the object that it was built to focus on. We turn our love away from God and towards our own comfort, our own kingdoms, as Jonah did. We rebel, we get angry, we put God on trial. We worship the created thing instead of the creator. And God had every right to take Jonah out right there. God has every right to take you and I out. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only eternally beloved son, that those rebels and sinners who put their faith in him might not perish but have eternal life. The cross is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. Like Jonah, we put God on trial. Jesus actually went on trial for crimes he did not commit. And yet he went to the cross and died for our rebellion and our idolatry. The book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy set before him? It was bringing rebels and sinners and evildoers like you and me into the eternal love, the eternal family that God has been since day, before day one, from eternity past. So to be mad at God for saving sinners goes against the very heart of God. God rejoices in saving sinners. He rejoices in being glorified and enjoyed among all nations, 
and he is sovereign. His word says that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He has every right to do so because the story is not you and, about you and me. Salvation is not about you and me. Salvation is about God and his glory and his joy. We have no right, especially as sinners and rebels ourselves who do not deserve any more than the Ninevites or any more than Jonah or any more than insert our enemy here. We have no right to put God on trial or to question his goodness. Again, will we be kings and queens of our own inconsequential kingdoms or will we be a child in his? Because children don't get to call the shots. Trust me, I work in a kindergarten classroom. Children, praise the Lord, children do not get to call the shots. Will we trust God and he is good? And will we trust him to be just? To combat that false belief, Jonah not only had a false passion, but a false belief that God had gone soft on sin. Well, we just said that what we deserved was death. By forgiving us, was God going soft? By no means, friends. Do you remember how we talked about Exodus 34 a minute ago? Did you notice that Jonah only quoted half the passage? We're going to put it back up on the screen. And I want you to see what Jonah left out of Exodus 34 when God declares his name. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Check, 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 check. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, to be clear, this is not saying that you are guilty of your ancestor's sin. This is God saying that the consequences of your sin might last beyond your lifetime. Sin has long impacts. But it's clear that God does not overlook sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. God takes sin so seriously that he sent his son to die, to bear the punishment for sin, to bear the wrath of God God did not send his son to die on the cross just to be nice. He bore the wrath of God that you and I deserved. Every single sin will be punished because one day Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead as we 
mentioned earlier in that Thessalonians passage. And the punishment for every single sin will either fall on Jesus or the sinner. And you may ask, well, if Jesus died on the cross and judgment's coming, why doesn't God fix everything now? Why is the world still messed up? Look at how Peter answers this question in 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some account slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is not letting things slide. He is not going soft. He is not ignoring injustice. God is demonstrating his character as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is being patient. But his patience is meant to lead sinners to forgiveness. He is slow because he wants to bring sinners into his eternal love. But it's clear too. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Judgment will come. And sinners who are not in Christ will be eternally separated from God. God is absolutely loving and he is absolutely just. That is the truth. That is the biblical truth that confronts your and my false beliefs and false idols and confronts Jonah's false beliefs and false idols. Now, what new roots, if we have our roots in those truths, what new fruit should it produce? What new actions, what new passions should it produce? If we are delighting in what God delights in, if we are, instead of being self-centered, putting our faith and our joy in what delights God. Well, one is that we participate in God's sacrificial mission. Top of the service, we quoted Isaiah chapter 9. And one of the verses I love from Isaiah chapter 9 is that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. The world is darkened with sin and blinded by sin. In John chapter 1, John describes Jesus as the light of the as a light that came into the darkness. And he commissions his church to be the light of the world. The light does not hide under a basket. We are called to be a light to people living in darkness. And that includes the people who frustrate us and anger us 
And who do we even call our enemies? Remember, friends, the Lord is returning. His patience is meant to lead the nations to repentance. But there are consequences for sin. And without Christ, those consequences are eternal. So what does it look like for us to joyfully engage in God's mission, turn away from our selfishness, turn away from our self-centered kingdom, and turn towards participating in God's kingdom and the advance of his kingdom? It means first praying, especially praying for our enemies and the people who it's hardest to love. We're commanded explicitly in the New Testament to pray for our leaders, whether they frustrate us or not. And for most of human history, political leaders and Christians have not got along. It means praying for their genuine good and their salvation. Not like a a five-year-old who has to say sorry, like, sorry. Like genuinely praying, Lord, I genuinely want this person to come to know you, and I genuinely want them, your common grace to come upon them. I know your patience is to lead them to forgiveness. And there's still anger in my heart. Forgive me for my anger. Help me to love them. It means loving, sacrificially engaging in his mission means giving. Giving to what the Lord is doing here at Redemption Hill on the west side and taking opportunities like what we have this month to sacrificially give above and beyond Bless friends like Chris and Tatum. Bless friends like Mason and Malia or Reed and Shelby. And it means going. It means turning away from our own comfort because going to share the gospel always involves discomfort. Locally, we have 47,000 people in our part of town, most of whom don't know Jesus, many of whom come from various religious backgrounds, tons of opportunities to tell people about Jesus, to be the light in the darkness. And globally, as I hear Chris and Tatum talking about the unreached people group where they live, one of the hardest to reach unreached people groups, they are serving among the three plus billion people, no access to the gospel. That number needs to be on our minds all the time. There are three billion people who will be born, live their whole lives, die without ever hearing about Jesus. And it's not because no one's thought of them. It's because it's hard. All the easy places have been taken. People are unreached because they're in places that are hard to get to physically. Or the government or the cultural leaders are hostile to Christians. Either culturally or legally. In order to participate 
and what God is doing in his mission, we need to turn away from our selfish kingdoms, from being kings and queens of our own insignificant kingdoms and to rejoice in what God rejoices in. We get to participate. We have the opportunity through the Great Commission to participate in what delights God and God bringing lost sinners into his eternal love. That is incredible. What an opportunity. Not easy, but good. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've been struggling through this whole Jesus thing, remember what Peter said. God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. It is the abundant love and kindness of our sovereign God that you are hearing the gospel this morning. He is slow to anger. But when he comes back, it will be like a thief in the night. And he will be just. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Turn away from your selfishness. Put your faith in Christ. If you believe this is true, and you're putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, please come talk to me or Josh after the service or anyone you see on stage. We'd love to have a conversation with you about what next steps could look like. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, you are good, slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And yet so often, because you are sovereign and we are not, that we, our little kingdoms, don't line up with yours. Humble our hearts. Help us to turn away from our selfishness and turn away from our pride and put our trust in you. Praise you. Amen.